What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Normal Guy Lazy Eye Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jared Magazine, and we are back. We took a little bit of a week off, had some technical difficulties last week, couldn't get the episode up in time. Again, bear with me. I'm just a normal guy with a lazy eye, so I'm still trying to figure out all this podcasting stuff. But I think this week's episode is definitely worth the wait. We have a very exciting first time on this show, uh, candidate for the governor of Massachusetts. That's right. Ben Downing is joining the show. Uh, fellow PC grad, fellow state senator out in the Berkshires of Massachusetts. And it was an exciting interview for me because this was the first time I'd never interviewed a politician. I didn't know how it was going to go. I knew we had a connection with PC. So my guard was down a little bit, thank goodness. But it was it was just as good as I thought it was going to be, if not even better. Um, ben is such a down-to-earth man, uh, really, really a family man. And I really appreciated that. Really some interesting stories from his father and his brother. And I really don't want to give much away because Ben's going to do a lot better job telling his story than I will. So without further ado, I want to introduce to you guys, Governor Candidate Ben Downing. This is the Normal Guy Lazy Eye Podcast, a true eye-opening experience. Well, guys, we have another very special guest on the show today. Ben Downing is a former Massachusetts state senator, fellow friar, and candidate for the 2020 governor race here in the beautiful state of Massachusetts. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show, and welcome. It's, it's an honor to have you. Thanks for having me, Jared. Always good to be with a fellow friar. I love it. I love it. And I know we were talking about it a little bit earlier, but are you getting a chance to enjoy this uh crazy spring weather we're, we're recording this on march 11th so here in boston they got freaking out a little bit because it hit 70 <laughs> yeah it was uh nice to get out and go for a walk we're uh right over by the water here in east boston and uh you know it it felt like spring and and we know in new england that just means we got a, a couple more days of winter ahead of us but uh yeah it was uh it was nice to get out there and not feel like you had to cover up every last uh every last inch <laughs> And like coming from Southern California myself, I count these days now as blessings. I like you took, I took for granted the sunny and 70 degree days, like in, in California and like almost put on a sweatshirt during those days. And now it's like shorts and t-shirts, no matter what. <laughs> yeah, yeah, We've officially hit the weird season in New England where you're just as likely to see someone with a, like a winter hat and a parka on right next to somebody with you know, shorts and sandals on in line at Dunkin' Donuts, right? It, like it, is- it tells you kind of your like uh, your tenure here in Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just just how thick your blood actually is, right? <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Awesome. Well, this is an exciting interview for me. It's always great to chat with a fellow friar. So I'd love to start uh, where we start most of our interviews, right? And kind of taking us back to your beginning. You're the oldest of four out from uh, Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which is just about as west as you can go here in this state. Uh, can you kind of take us through a little bit about growing up in the Downing household and what that was like? Yeah, I mean, I, I big family and from a big family. So my dad was one of nine uh, growing up. He was the, the sixth of nine in that family. We actually grew up just one street over from where, uh, where he did. So we could you know, run to the end of our dead end street, hop the fence and be in my grandmother's backyard. Um, and it, you know, I, I'm as lucky as can be, right. You know, uh, a, this stable, loving household, um, and a house where we talked about politics at the kitchen table, where we went out and held signs for family members and friends, where going to your, you know, your ward caucus, uh, at the, you know, American Legion post was not a weird thing. It was something that you just did. Right. Yeah. And, 
Um, my dad ran for district attorney in 1990 when I was nine years old. Um, and I was the, the one in the family who was old enough that my mom pushed me out the door. Um, and I had to go with my dad. And I thought politics was, you know, eating pizza and pancakes and, you know, more donuts than I cared to admit. And that's how I judged candidates who brought the best donuts to the standouts. That's how every nine-year-old would, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but as much as I had that, I had enough awareness to, to be able to really enjoy and to notice, you know, people coming up to my dad and talking to, to him about their hopes, their fears, um, what they wanted to see in, in a public servant and a district attorney. Um, and then got to see that while my dad served in that role for, for 13 years. So, um, you know, I, I graduated uh, high school in 99 from St. Joe's, um, you know, ended up at PC. Um, I, I joke about it. So I went to grad school at Tufts mm -hmm. and I had resisted even taking a tour at PC because my dad went to Providence. My dad was class of 72 or 73. Right. Um, and I didn't want to go down there because I didn't want to do what my dad did. And we were uh, taking the tour at Tufts. And for some reason, the tour had us outside in the rain. And I just said to my dad, like, I'm I'm not going to like this place if they tour us outside in the rain, the, the silly ways you make college decisions. And right. um, we ended up going down to Providence ostensibly just to get lunch, to do something different. Um, and I went on campus and fell in love with the place. Right. Um, so I ended up there. I was a poli sci major, thought I was going to go to law school. The law schools I applied to didn't think I was going to go to law school. <laughs> I like that aspect. I like that thought process. It wasn't you, it was them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was, um, I was home mowing lawns um, at Tanglewood, um, which is a lot of lawn to mow, which gave me a lot of time to think. And my, mm -hmm. my college roommate, Jay Higgins, called me uh, and said, hey, like I have, a, I have this apartment. I thought I had a roommate lined up. That roommate bailed. I'm in DC. Do you know who's down here? And that was on a Monday. And, you know, two weeks later on a Friday, I packed up our family van with my dad and went down there. And I, I had never been to DC on a school trip. I, I hadn't, like, I had never set foot in DC. Right. Um, so moved down there really on a whim and thought, I'll make a go of it here. And started looking for a job, got a job waiting tables, which is what everybody with a poli sci degree in DC does. Right. And, right. Um, got lucky enough to get a job working on Capitol Hill for a couple of congressmen from Massachusetts. And really that's, for me, that's when I fell in love with public service. Like I had been around it. I knew it was important. Um, but I loved being there and getting to work for, for my member of Congress, John Oliver from Western Mass. And, you know, being there when people would call, cause no one's calling Congress to tell them they did a good job. <laughs> being the person in the, in the office who, when they said, well, how could you know what's going on up here when you're down there in DC you know, they'd hand the phone to me because I could say, listen, I'm from Western Mass. I, I, I have some idea what you're going through. Let me listen and let me tell you what the congressman's trying to work on. And, uh, you know, that was just, it was a special moment for me um, and, and loved my experience there. Yeah. And uh, that, that makes a good point. I think like the kind of taking those chances that you did and mm -hmm. just kind of rolling with the punches. But let's talk a little bit about that PC connection really quickly, because, yeah. right, we'd be remiss to not mention our great alma mater. But were you a McDermott guy uh, freshman year or where'd you live? Uh, no, Guzman. Or uh, not, sorry, Guzman was sophomore year. Um, uh, no, St. Joe's was sophomore year. Guzman was freshman year. So se second floor Guzman, uh, 203. Uh, beautiful view, which is a little bit different now, but we have the view looking at what the soccer field and then down to to, to downtown um so yeah lo love the love the dorm uh, my my roommates are two of my best friends to this day i love it we're, we're still in touch with the the guys who are next door to us 
Um, so yeah, love, uh, love the setup there. And, um, yeah, I mean, what else can I say? I lucked out big time on roommates. Uh, have you, have you been back? I mean, since graduating in 03, but have you seen the campus nowadays? Yeah. So I'm trying to think of the last time I was on campus. Um, at this point now, it's probably a couple of years back. Um, so we set up a scholarship. My, my dad and my brother, uh, both passed away, uh, tragically from heart disease. Um, my dad at, uh, at 52, my brother at 26 and both of them also went to PC. And mm-hmm. so we set up a, a memorial scholarship there, um, with some of the, the campaign resources I had left when I left the Senate and a lot of donations from family and friends. And, uh, was there to, to help kick that off, have stayed in touch with folks at the poli sci department. Um, you know, that's been an extended family to us in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah, the campus looks incredible. Um, you know, all the facilities look incredible. Everybody at PC should be an Olympic athlete based on the gym they've got. Uh, oh, come on. You're calling me out here. <laughs> compared, compared to what we had. Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, you know, both. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, uh, it's a, it's a special place that, uh, you know, looks all that much better these days. And I know I'm going to get flack for this because I say it just about on every episode, but I swam at Providence and graduated in 2019. And I can totally agree with you on the facilities. Like I would even say the student, the student gym was up to par with the division one student athlete gym. And like, after finishing my time as an athlete, I was like, oh no, like, what do I do? I like, do I have a gym to go to? And that like, that wasn't the case at Providence. Like it was just as nice. (laughs) Yeah. But um, you kind of touched on it earlier, like that, like that Friar family, and we've had quite the group of Friars on the show, some graduating in the early 2000s. We've had athletic director Bob Driscoll on the show and some more graduating recently, but all of which have had kind of that like something about Providence that has stuck with them. And there's something special about this place. What was it for you that has really resonated with Providence all these years? You know, I don't know that I have the right word for it, but let me start when I was deciding, I was uh, deciding between um, Providence and another Catholic institution uh, that, um, you know, might be closer to where I am right now. And when (laughs) when I was trying to decide between those, um, you know, I talked to someone who had a couple of kids who went to both and he said, you know, your friends at that one place, they're going to be your friends for four years. He said, your friends at Providence are going to be your friends for the rest of your life. Just know that. Um, And that really stuck with me. Right. Like, and, and, and it, it said something bigger about the, the community, right. That Providence creates. Um, and, and, you know, it's been true in my life, right. Like it was true for my four years uh, and it was true after, you know, from, from roommates and, and, and acquaintances to people I've stayed in touch with. Um, you know, I mean, I have this memory seared into my head of, you know, when, when the, the church doors opened at my dad's uh, services, like I looked and the two aisle or the two, you know, sort of pews to the right were just filled with my friends from school. And there was this moment where my family's world had shattered and, you know, they, they just showed up, right. And, and we're just there. And in every way, we're just there for me. And, and I know multiple other friends have had that same experience. Um, you know, people who are there with you in the tough times, they're there to support you. The same friends showed up and knocked doors in 2006 and, and got a kick out of it. The same ones who I'm, you know, knocking, knocking on their doors now to get them to help out. Right. So it's, um, it's a community in every sense of the, every sense of it. Right. And it's a, Mm -hmm. it's a special place for that reason. I I say the same thing, like as cheesy as the saying is like fire family, it's like, 
it or, or even like saying like oh it's divine providence like as cheesy as those sayings are like it's so true and i like you can't you can only say it so much but you have to let someone go experience it and that's what i tell every every high school senior looking at it <laughs> absolutely but so you touched on it earlier, like after graduating Providence with a poli sci degree, you you know moved down to DC, waited some tables, and then ultimately got those jobs on on Capitol Hill. What was and you touched on it, like having that connection of being in Western Massachusetts before going to DC and having that ability to kind of express that to the people calling the stand, mm-hmm. the senator's office. What was the biggest takeaway from those early years in DC politics for you growing up? And um, I, I love the experience because, listen, I'm, I'm a Democrat. I grew up in Massachusetts. I'm a, I'm a white Irish Catholic guy. I was not used to being in the minority in any sense, anywhere right. where I was, right? And so, you know, I, I haven't spent so much of my life in the Northeast. It was the first opportunity really to get outside of the Northeast, to get exposed to the, the wider world, right? Like DC is this you know, melting pot isn't a fair description because people aren't there long enough um, too often. I say that my sister's been there for 15 years, nowhere near politics. So Maggie's got a different experience, but the, the PC that, or the, the DC that I interacted with was very, um, you know, just people were coming and going, but bringing experiences, uh, you know, lived and otherwise like their lives, their thoughts, their ideas all together. And it was just sort of this big at, at the best, like collision where we got the best of everything. And, you know, too often this big collision where everyone just sort of yelled at each other. But, um, you know, from, I loved it because it challenged what I thought, what I cared about. Um, and it also forced me to think about things a little bit, you know, wider, right? Like we'd play softball after work, you know, played, played, uh, pick up basketball pretty horribly. Right. And you're out there playing with guys and girls who, you know, their boss is then debating your boss the next day. And at least from my perspective, right? Like you're going to write a different speech if you know, the person you're debating is the guy who just made the great play to win the softball game the other day. You're going to have a debate about the ideas and that's going to be a robust debate, but you're not going to question why that person is in it when you've had a beer with them after and you say like, man, that like, I couldn't disagree with you more, but I know you want the same thing I want. And I love those moments, like along with the moments of real service, I love the moments of debate about sort of why, why are we actually all doing this work? And you know, I think that gets lost right uh, these days. And that's an important thing that I'd, I don't know the answer to, but I'd like to think we can capture that spirit more. I, yeah, it's, it's interesting to me as a, as a post-grad individual growing, like living life in Boston compared to like what you experience in DC. Like, I don't feel like we're having those types of conversations. And obviously given the kind of circumference of where you're living, it's a little bit different, but I just, it's, it's an interesting topic, right? When we're playing pickup softball in Southie, we're not having those conversations. It's more like, did the Bruins win or did the Celtics win or are they playing at home? <laughs> but it's an interesting dynamic for sure. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I mean, politics is the number one sport in DC for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, I knew I was, uh, I was at a bar in Georgetown with a couple of friends and you know, we were, we were trying to get a game on and someone said, well, there's such and such Senate debate and that's on C-SPAN and that's, that's what was on the TV. And, and there was sort of no debate about it. We looked around like, it's a really good college basketball game. Like we can't get that. And uh, that, that's when I knew I'm, I might not be long for DC. Great right. city, uh, wonderful people. Uh, they deserve a lot better on a lot of levels, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. It's politics is the number one sport there. 
I love it. That is so true. So going off of that, right, in 2006, not long after you walked across the stage at Providence getting your diploma and at the rightful age of 25, you ran for an open seat in the Massachusetts State Senate. What like what made you take this type of leap so quickly? And how did you know that you were personally ready for this? Because I mean, I'm not in in politics by any imagination, but I'd have to think that that's not the traditional way to get right into it. <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly wasn't the traditional way. Um, you know, the, the, the why, right, was like, I grew up in Pittsfield at a time where, you know, General Electric was downsizing where there were, where they were fighting the cleanup, right? And there were like, just this, we were dealing with this mess, right? Like, I did not grow up during the boom times where, you know, GE got up to, you know, 12 to 15,000 employees in a city that was 70,000. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I knew, I knew the experience of that one dominant industry being losing jobs, friends who were on my little league team at the start of a season, not on it by the end because their, fr- their parents got transferred to another plant. Um, and the message I heard growing up, Jared, was, you know, study hard and get out. At the same point, um, when, you know, when, when my dad passed away and I had seen this throughout my life, but it, it really was poignant when my dad passed, right? Like that community rallied around us, right? Like they held us up when our world was broken. They showed up at our doors, you know, people had to, had to, <laughs> the deli had to tell people they couldn't send us any more deli platters because they had sent us so much. And we just started sending them, you know, to, to one of the, uh, the homeless shelters, right. And trying to help out that way. But like that, that was like the spirit of the community, right? Like they were ready to fight to make sure that, you know, that we would be able to get through that. So, you know, I hated the idea that growing up, I was told to write off that community. And I wanted to go back and I wanted to try to, to change that story and to not focus on the, the half of the glass that was empty in the Berkshires, but to actually focus on the part that was full and talk about how we could use that to fill it up even more, right? And um, you know, that was part of why I ran, right? Like it, that was the driving reason. And then it was, how do we start to make decisions with the longer term in mind? How do we build off of these strengths? How do we both recognize the, the weaknesses, the challenges that we face, but then use those strengths to try to address them? And, um, you know, the exciting thing for me was, you know, so many folks in the Berkshires had seen uh, young people leave and not come back. Uh, that in running for office, you know, in a race where there was a 10 term former state representative, talented other candidates, folks who had been there for, for decades, right? Um, that voters were ready to give a young person a chance because they were tired of seeing young people in their lives leave, right? And, and not come back. And, you know, it was critically important for me to, to give back to that community that gave me every opportunity in life. And then, you know, the, the how of it, right. You know, being 24, when the race started 25, when it ended, um, you know, I I drew on the experience of having lost my dad. Right. Cause it was, it was a heck of a lot easier to get up in front of a democratic town committee to speak at, you know, uh, a neighborhood association to, to be in a debate uh, with talented other candidates when really my first public speaking experience, right. Significant one was given a eulogy at my dad's funeral. Right. And, the ability to be able to draw on that and say like, if I can do that, then this other thing's not going to be that tough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, that's somehow how I got through it. But you know, the, the crazy thing about all this is like, I don't know if I run for office that first time or since uh, if my father was still around and it's, it's something I, you know, it's in the back of my head. It's just one of those transformative things. Right. Yeah, it's funny. You know, you, you talked about kind of your dad's impact from as early as college to now, it, it sounds like 
no matter what, it sounds like whether it's going to Providence or, you know, falling into public office, kind of following in, in your dad's footsteps. And I love that. And I know your brother, Nate, also kind of had a, a say in that as well, when you were a little bit hesitant on jumping into this a little bit early. What was what was his advice as the younger brother telling his older brother, you're, you're running for this office and there's no fans or buts? Yeah, so I'm, I'm at grad school uh, at Tufts. I'm trying to make this decision. It's uh, around St. Patrick's Day, I think the, the day after, actually. We found out the day of. It's the day after that the state Senate seat back home was, was open. And, um, you know, Nate and I had become incredibly close after my dad passed. We were just, you know, we thought about the world similarly. Um, close with all my siblings, but Nate and I were really close. And, mm. you know, uh, I'm trying to talk it through with them. I'm telling them I've got this internship. I'm finishing off grad school. And I realized there's there's no one else on the line. And I, I call him back and my cell phone must have dropped. And he said, no, cell phone didn't drop. I hung up on you. You're being an idiot, right? Like this opportunity's there for you. Um, don't overthink it. Go do it, right? Mm. And, and we all need those people around us from time to time. Um, who are either going to push us into something or pull us back from the edge when we're doing something silly. Me, more often than not, it's that I need the push. Uh, and Nate gave me that push that time. He then, um, he then went on to get an incredible internship at the Supreme Court. Um, so went to D.C. himself and helped me little to not at all in the case, yeah. <laughs> uh, other than to nitpick strategy from nine hours away. But, um, you know, that, that push was what I needed. And, um, you know, again, uh, but for that push, I don't know if I'm sitting here, right? Yeah, but I'm sure he told you it was all it was all thanks to him that you got it because he told you. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Yeah, Nate was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he did not lack confidence. <laughs> but you you touched on it earlier. You went on to defeat a senator who had previously served you know ten terms as a state representative. Now that's twenty years, and I think kind of the age old philosophy is like change is good. So like let's get someone new in there. But even in those types of races for that type of a position, it can kind of be like, well, let's just keep going with the flow. Like as a 24 going on 25 year old, 26, like how do you get the recognition? I know it's your hometown, but like, how do you get the, the, I don't know if it's the confidence, but more like the, uh, the confidence in the voters to be like, I can do this. Yeah. We, we kind of joked about it. Um, We joked about it actually at a first campaign meeting which we had at my mom's house um, and we're sitting down, we're kind of talking strategy, who's going to do what, how do we do this? And I said, how are we going to deal with the age issue? And I said, well, first that was the, that was, that had to be the big one circled on the whiteboard, uh, right? So like, you know, first, even at that point at 24, it was clear I was losing my hair. So we, I had buzzed my head and I said, well, the good thing is I look like I'm 40. So, <laughs> so it's really, there's going to be a lot of people will be even surprised. Right. Um, and we really looked at it as a threshold that we had to clear, right? That I had to prove to voters um, that I could do the job, right? And, and I had to present seriously, like everywhere I went, no matter what, I was shirt and tie. I mean, I, I sweat through more shirts and ties over that summer than I care to admit. I bet. <laughs> um, I, I was shirt and tie everywhere I showed up, right? And, and we were serious about it. I tried to be as prepared as possible for everything. Um, to the point of probably being overprepared sometimes and trying to say too much to prove, no, I know this, I can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly grew in my confidence, you know, over time. Um, but I would tell you, Jared, like up until, you know, even the day of the campaign, we didn't know if it had worked, right? You know, we weren't, there wasn't a lot of polling out there. We didn't have the money to poll. Right. Um, you know, we just knew that I had worked like nuts, that I had an incredible group of volunteers and supporters many of whom had, had worked for and helped my dad. 
um, but also a lot of whom were my friends growing up and their parents. And, you know, it was very much so a, a grassroots campaign um, in the truest of sense. It wasn't grassroots ideologically, it was grassroots, like these are family and friends that we knit together uh, across uh, the county and then into the, the hill towns. Um, and, you know, we were able to, to pull it off, right? 243 votes out of 23,647 uh, that were cast was the margin, which you're looking at like 80 polling places. That's like one and a half people per polling place. I think I wasn't a math major at PC, but like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to fact check that for you. Something right, right it. That if they either don't vote for me or vote for somebody else, I, I'm not sitting, I'm not sitting here. I'm not sitting here having had those life experiences. So yeah, it was, it was incredible. Absolutely incredible run. And uh, you know, even if I win this next one, nothing ever tops the first one, right? That was something special. Right. Absolutely. And I think, Another another kind of area in 2006, you know, I wasn't able to vote back then. But one thing I know is like voting in the 2000s, mid 2000s versus the 2020s in the means of the ability to have access to things like social media. You have social influencers like what like and and I know you're these are going to be two very different races going from the state senator to the governor. But can you kind of take me through that process from 2006 to what you're expecting in 2022 in this high, like we'll call it a quote unquote, higher profile election. Yeah. yeah. I mean, 2006, it was a big deal if a candidate had a website, let alone <laughs> an, an email list. Um, you know, I mean, like Facebook wasn't really a thing. Like we, right. like I am old enough to admit, like we still had the physical Facebook, right? Like when I went to Providence. Um, so, you know, it was barely a thing. Um, there were a couple of candidates that were trying to use MySpace, but it all just seemed a little bit too weird and people yeah. stayed away from it. Um, so yeah, most like you had to have the website and the website was really sort of a, um, you know, more of a place to put up some position papers, maybe post some stuff about events, um, generally have some pictures, right. To try to document the work that you were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was tricky, right? Like there was really very few ways outside of the traditional media. There were some blogs that covered some stuff, but not a lot. Um, and certainly not a lot in the Berkshires, not like there is sort of like a political ecosystem around Boston. Um, so, you know, trying to get coverage was, was incredibly difficult. You were, you're more likely to get it from a weekly, you know, local newspaper, um, you know, or, or even, you know, a, a local magazine, something along those lines. So, you know, we had a website, we had an email list, and that was about the extent of it uh, over time. And I don't think we even really appreciated them in particular with the email list that we were a little bit ahead of the game and how we built it and how we used it. Uh, but yeah, now you, you fast forward to 2022, right. And, you know, at launch, right. You know, we've got a, a, a website that's largely about, you know, sort of telling a, a quick and simple narrative of me along with the, uh, the donation capabilities, then, you know, we've got a, a digital strategy team. That's part of our, our core consulting team uh, that's helping us sort of build out our strategy on, on the social channels you know, I was in office as social media started to, you know, grow in, in prominence and right. impact society in so many different ways, including politics. Um, and as one of the younger members of the legislature, you know, tried to sort of pioneer and play around with that in a, in a different way and serve as a resource to some of my colleagues who were uh, less, uh, less digital natives. Let's put it that way. Right. So that's a good, that's a really nice way of saying older. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, um, 
so yeah, and I mean, I know even in the time that I've been out while I've remained active on those platforms, uh, you know, I'm, I'm far from uh, an expert on them. And I think the exciting thing for me are the different ways that people are using those platforms to, to organize, right? Not just to get a message out, but to try to organize people in communities, to organize people around ideas, um, and to knock down barriers to participation in the political process. The tricky thing is, right, like there's no barriers to access to a candidate. Um, and, you know, it's important to remember that that is a, a subset of the broader population. Um, but, you know, every event is a subset of the broader population. And elected officials go to events every day to meet people, to be with people, to learn from people. So, um, so yeah, it, it's going to be a radically different campaign. But the core values are the same, you know, the, right. the core organizing principles, you know, trying to meet people where they are get to as many voters um, and build that foundation uh, from which the, the campaign can grow and flourish. And it's, it's so interesting to me because you make a great point on like what, what the kind of campaign team looked like in 2005. I wouldn't say a digital strategist would have been a pillar in that type of group, but nowadays it's almost like if you, if you don't, you're, you're yeah. miles behind, Absolutely. you know? So it's just so interesting to me, but kind of going back to your time as a state senator, right? I think people have the idea that in a two-year term, you, you're really only working for that first year. And then the second year is all focused on the reelection. I, I mean, and, and from a high level, right? Obviously, a lot of people don't understand, but can you kind of take us through what that day-to-day like grind was for you? And then would you say that second half year, there is that sort of added stress for that reelection cycle or looming? Yeah, you know, I, I would say like first, listen, I just got lucky. Nobody ran against me uh, any of those terms. Uh, right. I think is more, you know, no one wanted to do the drive from from Pittsfield to Boston, let alone cover the fifty-two town. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, setting that aside, you know, maybe it's it's probably a little bit easier to zoom up and think about uh, the week. So being in Western Mass, I would spend about half my time in Western Mass, half my time in Eastern Mass, right? So I lived in Pittsfield. Uh, but I always had you know, a room from uh, at a friend's place or an apartment that I'd rent at some point or another over that time. So I would be generally in Boston Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, normally, Senate sessions were Tuesday and Thursday, and I would use Wednesday for you know, following up on meetings with members of the administration, uh, organizing with my colleagues on, on legislation we were trying to advance, as I became chair of a committee, tried to you know make sure my committee hearings were Wednesdays to keep that keeping that time and space pretty pretty compact and efficiently used. Um, and then you know Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, right? I'm back in Western Mass. Um, Monday and Friday, you know, meetings in the district office, weekends, you know, district events, right? Like I, right. it was you know my mid twenties. I you know at that point, while uh, Mikhail and I met in in wait. Um, so, you know, I didn't have a lot of social obligations, didn't have a family yet at that point. Uh, and while all of my friends and they would remind me of this often were out having fun, right. You know, I, I was out doing my job, which I love. Right. And, right. you know, some nights or some weekends that's, you know, sitting with community groups that are working on broadband access in small towns. Uh, and other times it's being in the celebrity dunk booth for a local charity, uh, so that, you know, some folks can come and pay some money to, to throw softballs at a button and dunk a, dunk a politician, right? right. You know, it's a, so a weird and different existence, but I loved it, right? My job every day I woke up, whether I was in Eastern Mass or Western Mass, 
was to try to try to improve the quality of life and try to change some of those issues we talked about before that narrative we were telling our young people in the Berkshires um, and the the economic health and well-being of the Berkshires. It was my job to try to try to impact that. And man, like, what more can you ask for, right? Like, uh, lucky as lucky can be. And it sounds like it really didn't feel like much work. If you love what you're doing, it doesn't really feel like a, a, a job, but rather a, a career or a passion that you're you're obviously excited about. So it's 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 definitely you know maybe the however many hours commute. I, I haven't done the eastern to western mass commute. I have done the Boston to South Connecticut plenty of times, but <laughs> I would say it's probably about the same. <laughs> Yeah, so like you know, if if you don't hit really bad traffic, I was leaving the state house two and a half door to door to Pittsfield, like two fifteen, two and a half. Okay. Um, and as much as it was brutal uh, from time to time, it was great time to to you know sort of clear your head, think through stuff. Um, I I don't even care to admit how many times like I was able to work through sort of a speech for the next couple of days, just you know ripping through it, doing a couple of reps. Um. You know, that last stretch when you get from exit three to two is, is pretty long. Uh, and when you're doing that after a long debate, um, that, that, yeah, that feels long. That feels long. So I do, I do not miss the turnpike, even if I miss some of that quiet time. <laughs> a lot of stops to, to Dunkin' Donuts on your, on your drive back, right? A lot, of, a lot of large iced coffees and <laughs> blueberry cake donut to go along with it. Yeah. I love it. Awesome. So uh, an interesting dynamic, right? After 10 years in the state Senate, you personally stepped away from the seat and said and you, you had a promise to not serve more than 10 years. What what was that reason? And, and kind of, I'll have a follow-up question to that, but I'll start with that. What was the reason to step away from 10 years? Yeah. You know, I, I think politics and, and in particular, I think public service uh, an elective office works best when we have new people with new ideas, new experiences, new energy coming in and out of it, right? And bringing those, uh, bringing those ideas, bringing that experience, bringing that energy, right? Like Jared, I, I was going to events, and and I I made this sort of comment and promise in 2006. I honestly don't know if anyone would have held me to it, right? It was just right. I, I held myself to it. It mattered to me deeply. Um, but I would be, you know. Uh, I found myself in my last year in office, you know, knowing like, all right, I've been at this event 11 years in a row. Like what new can I say? What can I bring? Um, because this event might be, it might be the first time someone in this audience is there. It might be the most important thing in the world to them this year. And it hasn't been before. And I don't want to just be going through a routine. I don't want to just give the same remarks they've always heard. Um, I want it to be special for them because it's here. It's a big thing to them. Right. Um, and I could feel myself getting in that rut a little bit. Right. So, um, so I had made the decision before that for me reaffirmed the decision. Right. And the belief that, you know, it's good to mix things up and I needed a new challenge. Right. Um, I wasn't sure what that challenge would be. Right. Uh, when I got out uh, and when I made my announcement, I knew what I didn't want it to be. I, I didn't want to, I wanted to be in the private sector. I didn't want to do lobbying and I didn't want to do like government relations for a company. I wanted to be in a real, you know, in a, a business role and uh, really lucked out with the opportunity at Nexamp was the perfect opportunity for me. You know, a, a growing clean energy company that needed, you know, the, effectively a, a utility player who mm. understood sort of the, the world of policy and how that would impact um, the business strategy and the types of projects that we could develop. Um, and then trying to push, um, you know, trying to make recommendations for 
where we would make investments based on that. And, you know, I, I lucked out timing wise, I lucked out with the team, um, you know, not, not unlike, you know, PC or other places like Nextamp has created this great community. Um, yeah, it's a business, the bottom line matters, right? Um, it's a special place with special people. And, you know, it's had a profound impact on, on how I think about things, on, on how I see the world. I, I, quite frankly, I, I was frustrated by the end of my time in, in public office. And I come away from four years at Nexamp, you know, incredibly optimistic and hopeful, largely because of a lot of the young, talented people that I got to work with there. Awesome. And like kind of my follow up to that, and I kind of feel like I know where this is going to go, but should there be at least some sort of term limit on these more Senate positions and kind of having that, to your point earlier, that fresh blood, fresh ideas coming into office time and time again? You know, it's funny because having done it myself, you would think, I think it's the right thing for everyone. Um, I struggle with that because I know people who I worked with who were there in their 10th term, who I looked at and said, I don't know how you have that energy. Yeah. But like people who, like I, I think of a, a dear friend, uh, Dan Bosley was a state rep from uh, from uh, the Northern Berkshires, from North Adams, Williamstown, that area. Um, Boz represented that area from, I think, 86 to you know somewhere in like the 2010 range or something like that i mean like i I don't know how i would have done my job without boz there he was this incredible institutional knowledge for me to be able to draw on and learn from um and i know i was better at my job for boz having been there and i know i'm not the only one who can say that um uh, what i am 100 convinced of is that we not need to knock down every barrier there is to people of all backgrounds running for office, right? And that's everything from, you know, making sure, you know, simple little things like that people can use campaign contributions to pay for childcare, right? So that, you know, more young parents can actually financially be able to run for office, mm-hmm. but also having independent redistricting so that the lines that are drawn for, for uh, rep and Senate districts aren't based on what the current office holder thinks works best for them what based on uh, what's uh, in the best interest of the the broader community and i think you bring up a good point of like if 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 the passion and the charisma and the drive is still there you certainly should still want to do your job i think it's it's just because it kind of the term question is so ambiguous because it brings up a good point of like how do you know when that charisma of that individual is no longer the same as they when they first step in the office so it's it's definitely an, an interesting question and I, I don't think the debate of it is over anytime soon and i don't know if we'll ever have a right right or wrong answer so it's it's definitely an interesting topic in politics i think mm-hmm. so uh, let's uh, let's obviously talk about your race for governor here now uh we're still about two years out but you were one of the first to come out and say that you're putting your name in the hat I guess, and I know this is a silly question, and I know you've probably got it a thousand times since since saying that. Uh, but why is now the time for Ben Downing to run for governor? Yeah, so both just on the the calendar, why is to build the type of campaign that I think you know Massachusetts needs to build, and that we need to be able to take on the big challenges that we're facing. That requires a lot of conversations, right? That's not a campaign that is waged through 30 second ads and five and 10 and 15 second sound bites, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it, it is a campaign that is built from the ground up through multiple conversations, you know, through, through Zooms now, um, you know, at, at diners and at, you know, chicken dinners and, you know, at community events, 
time and time again so that when November of 2022 comes around and you know I'm knocking on Jared Magazine's door, you say, yeah, yeah, you know, this is the third time you've been here. Like, I get it, I'm with you, right? I might not agree with you on everything, but I know you're here to earn it, right? Like, I think that's critically important. Um, the why now, like why, why run for governor in, in 2022? You know, I spent the last four years, like I said, traveling, helping Nexamp build, and I would go to other states, other states that in my mind didn't have nearly the, the tools, the resources, you know, sort of the, the potential that Massachusetts has. I would go to those states and I would see them, you know, taking on the big issues that confront us, climate change, economic and racial justice. I would see them doing that with a sense of urgency and purpose that at, at the back end of my time in office, I did not see in Massachusetts and I have not seen since, right? You know, that, that sense of urgency uh, that we need. I think too often in Massachusetts, you know, we, we rest on our laurels and we think, well, we're better than every other state. We're, we are exceptional. You know, the, the rules don't apply to us. And while we have plenty of reasons to be proud about what this state has to offer and what it has produced in the past, uh, we can't run on the fumes of the past. We need to chart our own course. And I am convinced that the only way we do that is bringing more of that sense of urgency, right? That sense of urgency to our policymaking, to those big challenges, to, to climate and economic and racial justice and, and all of the different ways you have to take that on from, you know, from 100% clean energy uh, by, by 2040, 100% uh, clean electricity by 2030, you know, uh, by uh, universal childcare and finally investing in transportation the way we have and building a transit system that is world-class, right? Like those steps and so many more. So that's, that's the why from a, from a policy perspective as well. I, you, going back to the calendar example, you bring up an interesting point. And, and, you know, we talked about my, where I work right now and I work in sales under Steve and like kind of going off of that, you know, there is a, a almost a fine line that you kind of have to dance with of like too much yeah. uh, or too quickly too you know, too much, too quickly. How do how, how have you planned on kind of mitigating that or kind of finding that happy medium of making sure we're hitting the right people at the right time, you know, with the right message? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, the honest answer, Jared, is that it's a work in progress, right? Um, and there is this constant push-pull, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I have just as many people um, who have said to me, I want to see your policy platforms. I want to see your plans. I want to see the plans written out. I have just as many people who have said that as who have said, you know, well, why should I trust someone from Western Mass who spent a little bit of time here? How do you know what my community is like, right? And I guess where, where I have come down in the strategy that the team uh, that I'm excited to have assembled has built, right, is that, you know, we're going to have some core principles. We're going to have some core clear ideas that we're going to organize around. But we're going to use this time. And again, this is an answer to the, the why get in this early. It's yeah. to be able to have that conversation, right? To, to listen actively and to engage as many voters and constituencies in the development of that policy process. So it's this campaign will not just be about asking for your vote. It's going to be about asking for your ideas and then earning your trust and support as you see those ideas start to be manifested in that, uh, in that policy platform. And it is a it's a different way to run a campaign. Um, but the funny thing is, you know, we talk about how different, you know, 2006 to now is, yeah. but it's a lot of the lessons from Deval Patrick's gubernatorial campaign in 2006, right? Like 
right before my before I would end up running for the state senate, you know, I was with uh, Nate at the the Pittsfield Democrats Caucus at the General Electric uh, Athletic Association, and you know we went to see you know sort of this unknown candidate come and speak to the Pittsfield Democrats who our uncle had gone to school with and he pleaded with us to go because he thought there wouldn't be much of a crowd right <laughs> and we went to that and that was Deval Patrick and we were blown like blown away we came back and said we had never heard of this guy he's incredibly impressive you know who knows what he can build and that room was you know that was like the third iteration if you heard Deval tell it the first room was two people and four people then it was 20 you know it was it was eight it was 20 and then it's 40. And then all of a sudden the thing takes off if you right. if you built a campaign in a way that people feel invested in it. So, you know, I, I think that is um, uh, I think that's some of what we're trying to think about here, some of what we're trying to build here. I love that. And and kind of going off of the the in your messaging of like the urgency of building a stronger Massachusetts and kind of like why now and like as a Massachusetts resident all your life, minus those years at PC and DC, can you tell this transplant, you know, this transplant Massachusetts resident sitting in Somerville right now, what makes this place so special to you and keeps you here versus like for me, like why I came here for, for work and for, you know, creating a career here? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing for me when it comes to Massachusetts, right, is that it's, it's literally all here, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think about the, Um, you know, the communities that I have called home, the communities that I've represented and been a part of, Um, you know, Pittsfield and East Boston are 150 miles apart, different in a million ways, right? But, but similar at their core, they're these tough, striving, creative, generous places. Now, there are also places that too often have had to fight too hard to get, you know, equitable access to resources and attention on Beacon Hill, but they, at their core, they're these special places where you see people come together in the most difficult of times. And the great thing about Massachusetts, again, like I represented these small communities in Western uh, Franklin County, right? Where yeah. when I was in the state Senate, we'd have coffee and conversation. We'd call around to the select boards, the school committees, right? And you get 10 or 15 people together from all those small towns and they'd have these unique challenges, you know, broadband access, um, you know, the, the plight of dairy farmers, you know, all sorts of issues with regional school funding formulas that that didn't really fit them and their size compared to things around Boston proper and, and greater Boston, right? Um, you have that. And then you have this, this urban global metropolis hub that is Boston and the innovation knowledge economy around it, right? Like you have, you are, you know, an hour away from you know, traditional industry in, in agriculture and, and aquaculture and fishing. And then you've got, you know, the, the most, the most modern vaccines being developed right here, right? Like it's, it's, it is literally all here. And that's, that's another reason I'm optimistic, Jared. That's another reason I want to run. There's all of this potential in Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. right? All of this potential that too often our, our political leadership is either unwilling or incapable or unwilling or incapable of tapping into and it's, it's frustrating to no end, right? And we've seen this in the vaccine rollout, right? Like we've seen mothers on maternity leave develop better websites than the state developed and have more solutions. Like we should be able to tap into that potential and bring it in. But the policymaking process in Massachusetts is too often far too insular, right? And, mm. and that is especially dangerous and damaging at a time where our communities are growing more diverse and dynamic. And you know, Beacon Hill needs to open itself up to, to bring in new ideas, new voices, new energy. 
Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's some of why I love Massachusetts. That's some of why I'm excited about the potential here. It's interesting. Like, I absolutely love this state. I've lived in Boston for two years now. I went to Providence. So I'm, I'm, I'm a New Englander, sort of, kind of, almost. I'm almost there. Like, my blood is warm, not thick as the sandals <laughs> and flip-flops in 60 degrees. But I think going to that point of, like, it's all here in Massachusetts, I think that is such an interesting point because coming from a large state like California – that's where you think like, oh, that state has everything because it's literally geographically takes up yeah, the majority yeah. of, an, of the entire con- you know, of the entire country. But like, it's the same thing goes for here in this smaller state of Massachusetts. You have the, the metro of Boston and then the, the Berkshires of kind of that rural, like you said, open area. But I think it, it's interesting to say on the, you know, here, like we can tap into both of those and have equal opportunity. It's, it's interesting to me for sure. Yeah, it's exciting. It's a huge opportunity and it's just crying out for leadership that sees it and then, you know, tries to make those connections too often in our politics over the the last, you know, generation, right? Over the last three decades, um, you know, we, we have seen regions pitted against one another. Mm-hmm. Um, when, if you take a step back, what you realize is it's not that any one region is benefiting disproportionately over the other. Right. Although jobs and economic opportunity have clearly, you know, consolidated around greater Boston, but that's come with significant challenges on housing, on transportation, on a million other fronts. And what you find is because the state hasn't consistently had that urgent leadership, it has not made the investments that we need to make, and it has not thought, you know, about what's in the best interest of the next generation and instead focused on the next election, right? That we have ended up with this scenario where. Every region thinks someone else, somewhere else is benefiting. And the truth is that no one has what they need to be able to, to tap into the full potential. And, and that's, again, that's why I'm running, right? It's to try to try to change that conversation and help us start to realize that potential. Absolutely. And, and kind of going off that, right? 2022 is, is going to be one interesting year and, and dream with me here, but we'll be coming off of this global pandemic, you know, hope, you know, and hopeful that everything's back to some sort of normalcy, but you are going to be dealing with a state, uh, you know, and quite literally the country that is going to have to restart at step one. Mm -hmm. And in your first hundred days as governor, what are those steps that you'll be taking to get us back on our feet? (laughs) We ask the big questions here. (laughs) I I have taught a lot over the the past few years, a, a lot, like generally like a course a semester, uh, at MCLA out in North Adams and at, uh, at Tufts, uh, where I went to grad school. Um, and I, I at least admit when I say that's a good question, I know that's the tell that I don't have the answer, right? And I like at least admitting that to, to the students. Um, you know, in the first hundred days, man, um, at the very least, and so much of this will be dependent on what happens over the next couple of years, right? Right. Um, I'd like to see the commitment in place to uh, 100% uh, clean electricity by 2030. Um, uh, you know, I would like to see progress on legislation to achieve universal childcare, right? Uh, based on an equity funding formula. Um, and then, you know, along with that, I think, you know, a, a significant and robust planning process for strategies uh, to uh, to address poverty, to support working families, um, and to make our democracy more vibrant, give people more access to the democratic process. 
It's a great answer. And I appreciate you giving me the kudos for the, the, for the good question. And I know, like, like we said, we're, we're quite the time out, but you know, from 2022, but it's always interesting to see, like, if today was day one, where, where, would, where would we be headed? So I appreciate you giving me that answer. I think as we look ahead, though, kind of to change topics here, and, and I'd love to get your thoughts here. As we look at the younger generation behind, I would even say myself, right? And maybe the college students of today, Gen Z, if you will, growing up with social media everywhere and being recorded and videos are being shared virtually found anywhere on the internet. We've seen many different professionals, comedians, entertainers, athletes get quote unquote canceled for their actions. And most of the time, rightfully so, right? You do something wrong, you should be taken, you know, accounted for. But I think, I, I, I don't know, like maybe 20 years from now, we'll have a presidential debate where a candidate is bringing up, you know, high school, college, YouTube comments. Mm-hmm. So like with our lives being lived under this really intense microscope, how, like, how do you tell the next kid who wants to be a politician? Like, you know, it, don't be too scared of something like that. Yeah. You know, I- I think I would start from the the point of, you know, not, not from a defensive point, right? But, you know, Michaela and I talk about this a lot as we think about, you know, our sons, um, you know, Malcolm and Eamon, and they'll turn four and one next month. Mm-hmm. Um, but we think about like the values that we want to impart to them um, and, and the lessons that we want to teach them, right? And, you know, f- the first and the dominant one is to just be kind, right? And so if if that message takes hold, um, then I would hope you're going to think a little bit quicker. Um, you're going to think differently than just the, like, what's going to get me the most retweets and likes, what's going to get, you know, what, what's going to go viral because odds are, it's not what's kind every once in a while it is. And, and those right. are all warming moments. Right. Um, but it's rare that that's what is right. Um, and I think it's, you know, trying to, trying to remember that the instant gratification is not, um, is not always what's in your long-term you know, sort of uh, well-being or, or um, you know, not in your long-term best interest, right? Um, and then, you know, I, I think what a lot of people end up falling into, right, uh, in a lot of this is that, you know, they they think there is some degree of anonymity um, and that that somehow gives them uh, the the ability uh, to, uh, to act in ways that, you know, that otherwise aren't in line with their values. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to, you know, for, from my perspective, right. Like integrity, I, I know this quote comes from someone else or some version of it, a better version of it. Right. Is that like, you know, integrity is doing, you know, doing the same thing when no one is watching than when everyone is watching. Right. Like integrity is your ability to, to hold on to that, that set of values, regardless of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's another lesson along with kindness, right? Is that like integrity matters, right? And yeah, maybe you don't get the laughs, right? Um, maybe you don't get the, you know, the uh, the instant fame on social media, but over the long term, that pays off, right? And so um, I think I would less tell people like, it's not don't be worried about um, the role of, of social media and all these different platforms it's more know to conduct yourself with, with kindness and integrity uh, as the centerpiece of who you are and who you want to be. And then the rest of it's going to come. Right. And, and I say that as someone who, you know, I mean, before I went to DC, like when I didn't get into a couple of law schools, I wanted to go to, like, I thought my world was over. I thought like mm. I worked my tail off. I didn't get into these. What am I going to do? 
best thing that ever happened to me, right? Like absolutely the best thing that ever happened to me. Like I had other offices that I thought about running while I was in the state Senate. And when it didn't come together, the things didn't line up. I thought, man, what, what am I doing here? Right? Like I thought I had this great opportunity. It's all gone. And in every case, it's always been the, the sort of the best thing that ever happened to me, that, that challenge that I've grown from that. Um, so I, I think again, like keeping, keeping those values over time are critically important. So I think that's the challenge. Isn't like, how do you avoid running into trouble on social platforms? The challenge is how do you hold on to your values in a world where the instant gratification doesn't seem to reward those values? Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting point. Cause I think a lot of the times, like with this quote unquote cancel culture, like everyone's like first reaction is to be scared or like be ready because someone's going to come w- come at your social media platforms with a fine tooth comb but like take a take a second to be like wait a minute like if i'm just sticking to my values and you know like i like to think i'm a pretty kind and and, and nice and and has a has some sort of integrity with them right like shouldn't be that big of a deal it shouldn't be that big of a of an investigation i didn't like it's an interesting thing it's an interesting thought to have like that sort of viewpoint of like if you're just doing the right thing, we, we should be good here. <laughs> and I, I would also like, and I think this is something that I, I don't know when I came to have this as um, something that I held dear, right? But just like trust people, right? Like yeah. it, it, it is, it, it's easy to be cynical and skeptical these days. Uh, I think it's tougher to trust people. And that's not, I'm not saying be naive, um, but you know, I know, you know like I, I made mistakes in elective office. There are votes I wish I could take back. There are bills I wish I could take back, right? But I learned from those mistakes and I was willing to, I think, always own up to those mistakes. I was willing to defend myself just because someone disagrees with you. That's right. not a mistake. I made mistakes, right? And I was willing to own up to it and and, and recognize that and grow from it. Um, and you know, the the ability to do that you know, reinforced to me the need to, to trust people, right? That, you know, someone, just because someone makes a mistake doesn't mean that they're, that they are, you know, that, that they're somehow unworthy of, of, you know, participating in, in broader society somehow. And that a lot of bounds around what's acceptable there and what's not. But like, mm-hmm. I, I think trusting people when they have those values of kindness and integrity, like that's sort of, that's the world in which we can all operate, right? Like, and have some, some healthy disagreements within it. I 100% agree. And yeah, it's, that's, I, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't say it better myself. Um, but Ben, this has been an absolute blast. I, first of all, I really appreciate you coming on and we do have one final question to ask and we ask it for all of our guests. So I'm really interested to see your answer here. I know it's still very early and, and you still have plenty more to do, but if you were to write your autobiography today, what would be the title of it and why? Um, Stronger at the broken places. Um, so that's a, a part of a quote from, uh, from Hemingway, from a farewell to arms. Um, you know, the world breaks everyone and afterward, many are strong at the broken places. Um, and I had someone share that with me after my dad passed. Um, and I was a Hemingway fan anyway, right? Like I just hadn't read a farewell to arms, mm-hmm. um, you know, read that then, uh, you know, and it has always stuck with me. Um, and I feel like I know I have become stronger um, through the, the tragedy and the loss of losing my dad and brother. Um, and I think that's helped me become a better person, even if I trade all of it in a heartbeat for five more minutes with each of them. Um, so yeah, that'd be the name of my autobiography. 
That was an awesome answer. And and I would say in almost record timing too, one of the fastest responses <laughs> to that. Cause usually we get a good 30 second pause or a 30 second thought, but no, I, I, I love that title and that's an incredible, it's, I mean, it speaks true to exactly what we've talked about today. So I a hundred percent agree. Awesome. Appreciate it. Well, Ben, again, I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, as always, best of luck to you and everything that you do. And I hope we do get to cross paths soon when this is all over. And as always, I mean, how can we not say go Friars, right? <laughs> Absolutely, Jared. What's the uh, what's the, the big coffee place over in uh, True Grounds? True Grounds is my go-to over, like over by, uh, it's in Ball Square, headed up over to Tufts. That's oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. live I live right on uh Winter Hill. Like I live in, on Winter Hill. Oh, we gotta go to Winter Hill too. We gotta go to Winter Hill Brewing. That's that's my guy, Bert. I live you... across the street from there. All right. So so Bert, uh Bert was one of my favorite bartenders in the Berkshires. He's a guy from Lee. So you tell him tell him when you go in there that you know me, right? So done. We'll do. Awesome. Well, we'll have to go get a drink there sometime soon, but I really appreciate it and we'll definitely keep in touch. All right, look forward to it, Jared. Awesome. So a big thank you to Ben Downing for coming on this week's show. Again, a first time for me, and it honestly couldn't have gone any better, and it's all credit to Ben. So thank you for coming on, sharing your story, and really um, hopefully igniting some of the younger people to go out there and get excited for this governor race in 2022. Uh, If you want to follow Ben along on this campaign, uh, you can get involved by visiting benformass.com or following him on Instagram at Ben Downing MA. So again, huge thank you to Ben. I'll leave uh, all things him in the description of this week's podcast. That does it for this week's episode. As always, good to be back. We're going to get back to your regular scheduled programming, one episode a week, every single Wednesday. I appreciate all the listeners. If you like what you're listening to, feel free to follow us on Instagram at normalguylazyeye. And again, we're putting out a brand new episode every single week with brand new exciting guests who have a much cooler story than just a normal guy with lazy eye. That's it with all the shameless plugs. I'll see you all next Wednesday.